Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Okay, Jill, I'm so excited to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much. Me too. I love your big phallus that you put here. <laughs> Otherwise known as the Bloom Yeti mic. It's very large. It feels like an old radio show. Hello from WNBC. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just testing. Testes, one, two, syphilis. <laughs> no, we're going to be live now. So we're going to record, but we can always edit. Oh, no, I like that part. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so we are in your kitchen, which I love. Your house is beautiful. Thank you. Who needs a studio? Nobody does. You are born and bred New Yorker. Yes, I couldn't live anywhere else. I have a fear of driving. I don't drive. So I really don't think I could function outside New York. Do you know how to drive? Not really. If I had to in an emergency, I could get to a hospital, but I don't drive. Okay. I don't have a country house, and I only travel to cities and ski places. And you don't like summer? I hate the beach. Yeah, I hate summer. I hate heat. I hate like weird toes on the subway and be flip-flopped feet of strangers and melting cones and, you know, smearing kids with sunscreen and sand in my box. I hate smearing kids with sunscreen, yeah, actually. I really hate it. Uh, you are a successful author of 10 books? 11. 11 books. Yes. It's so weird. It sounds like more than it is though, because one was a children's book that was like five pages and then three were young adult books. So they were like teen novels. So they're much shorter. I remember, well, first of all, my favorite was the Ex-Mrs. Hedge Fund. Oh, thanks. And I so came nice. to your book party at Fakai. Oh, that was a pouring rain night. Do you it remember was, that? It, it was, was torrential. But everybody got a gift certificate for a free blowout. So if your hair was fucked up, they could fix it later. Exactly. Exactly. You are the creator, writer, producer, and star of Odd Mom Out. That was an amazing show. Thank you. You're That's a cabaret so nice. performer. You're an improv comedian. I mean, you're a mom of three. You're a wife. Like, multi-hyphen, it doesn't begin to explain it. I don't even understand. <laughs> well, I'm never going to be a director. Why not? I don't know. A lot of people say, oh, you're a triple threat director and writer. And I'm like, no, 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 not a director. I would never want to direct. I don't have, you know, when people are like, I caught the bug. Well, I've been vaccinated. I'm never doing it. I say never say never. Oh, no, never. 
I think it's super technical and boring. I, I couldn't even believe how you know how to set up a microphone. I could never run a set like that. If I showed you this, you would know it in two seconds. You know what though? I don't aspire to do it. Like a lot of direction, there's the fun stuff with the actors, but a lot of it is like shots and lighting and all that bullshit. I don't care about that. All right. We'd rather see you on the screen anyway and have you writing. So that's fine. You can just you can let it go. <laughs> so this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, which is career advice. Oh, I love it. So it is taking you back to your school days. Okay. You went to Spence and Yale. Yes. And Taft boarding school. So you were a great student. You know what? In a weird way, yes, I had straight A's, but I don't think I was a great student in that I really didn't like high school. Like I saw it as like a game that I had to beat. I wasn't really intellectually curious. Does that make sense? Like I wasn't a truly good student because I think a truly good student cares and I was just trying to get through it and do well. Well, I didn't really like learn to love learning until college. But you're obviously naturally smart then because those are some hefty schools. I'm naturally smart, but I didn't love learning until I was older. Like in high school, I always felt like it was work. I didn't enjoy it. I don't know. I didn't have that thrill of learning and absorbing things until I could really pick my classes and find teachers that I was obsessed with. I don't think I enjoyed learning ever. I think it was just like a means to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So in college, did you do any memorable internships? Yes. I interned at Mademoiselle Magazine, which is now defunct. And my first boss was Katie Brosnahan, known as Kate Spade, to everybody after she got married and started her company. But I knew her as Katie Brosnahan. She was the best, best human being and friend. And I was devastated by her death just because I really felt like she had the perfect life, you know, for so long. And she was kind of an idol for me because I continued in magazines. I worked at Harper's Bazaar and um, at Interview Magazine. And after that experience working for her, with the exception of Sasha Eigelhart, another oh, editor I that Sasha. I really admired who seemed to have it all. I didn't have that many role models for people who sustained like meaningful personal relationships and motherhood and all that in the same way that I wanted. And so like there is that thing in Double Wars Prada of like, wait till your personal life blows up, you get a promotion. I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen for me. I'm not as ambitious about career as I was about marriage and motherhood. I know that sounds like so 1950s, but that was just, I'm not saying other people should be like that, but that's quote unquote my truth. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't say things like that, but it really was. I don't know. I just felt like she kind of had it all. So that was my first internship. Then I was at MTV. Um, Then I did like other programs. Any nightmare bosses? Yes, actually. Not to speak ill of the dead, but Ingrid Sishi was my boss at interview. And you know what? Like, I can't bash her because, well, because she's dead. No, but I can't bash her because she gave me opportunities that nobody else would have. She gave me articles at 20 years old to write. If I had been at Condé Nast, I would have been like fetching coffee and booking airplane tickets oh, like sure. my friends were. She gave me huge opportunity, but she was very mercurial and it was very challenging to work there. And I was not very happy for those two years. But I left with 200 articles. So I recognized that she gave me, you know, way more chances to have my name in the magazine and write what I wanted. But it was just like the morale there was pretty low. 
I mean, it's that way at a lot of companies. People write in all the time about their nightmare bosses and it's hard. I think work is hard enough, let alone to have a nightmare boss. Yeah, I cried a lot. I cried in the bathroom like at least once a week. <laughs> oh, poor and, You know what? It's really hard though because I try to talk to younger people about that you have to eat shit for two years. Yep. And it's sort of a shock when you're out of college and, you know, having to be doing all these menial tasks, but apparently they're not doing them in the same way. Like they don't use Xeroxes anymore. Like half my job was Xeroxing things or Polaroiding things and messengering things. And like, that's just not how it works. I think technology has stripped some of the grunt work out of things. I think people still get coffee though. Yeah. I got her two cheese danishes every day. And if Dean and DeLuca was sold out, she would yell at me. Cause that's your fault. Totally. It was my fault. So I started buying two in the morning and stashing one in my desk. And then and she didn't notice they'd be stale by the time you had I don't know. Door. I think they bake them all at five in the morning anyway. But I would just use the second cheese Danish run to take a walk around the block and catch my breath. And then I would just take it out of my desk and give it to her. Oh, my God. So I didn't want to get yelled at for them being sold out. So did you always know you wanted to be a writer in college too? Yes, but I thought I wanted to just be a magazine writer. Not that that's a just. That's pretty awesome. I made a great time of it for a few years, but I love magazines. I still buy magazines. As a child, I curled up in bed with magazines all through boarding school and college. I just loved magazines. It was my conduit to another world and back to New York when I was homesick. And I just love photography and I love the articles. I think I had ADD. I never was like diagnosed, but it was the perfect snippet for me. Like I just loved getting in bed with a magazine every night or three my real addiction was Spy Magazine. Interesting. And I read it cover to cover every single issue. I now have the coffee table book that I leave through sometimes. It's just was so brilliant. And I really just felt like that was going to be my career. And I never wanted to be an editor in chief. Maybe it's like my directing thing. I was just going to say that. I never wanted that. I wanted to do like the fun stuff. I didn't want the pressure. I wanted to just shit out the stories that were clawing their way out of me. So then I started writing in magazines and then I I morphed, you know, I kept morphing, but it was all just like growing. It wasn't so much a pivot, as everyone says. I just evolved, I guess. And you grew up in fashion. I did, but I wasn't really, I mean, my dad worked in fashion, so I was always on the sidelines, but I never felt like, oh, I want to go work for a design house or anything like that. I definitely love the world, but I'm more of it as an outsider looking at it. You're an outsider looking in in your own mind, but you were very much inside. So as far as like when you were out of college and how to network and get new writing jobs, like what kind of networker were you? Well, actually, it's funny you ask. I was just talking to my kid about this because she has an internship this summer. And my father had said to me with my first internship, I got you this job. You did not get yourself this job. I picked up the phone and I got you this job. So don't fucking think that you can waltz in there at nine o'clock. You're getting there at eight. You're going to be the first one there and you're going to be the last one to leave. Like you're not that great that you like earned this. This was a favor to me. So you're going to bust your ass. And I don't care if someone is there late because they have a date and they're just hanging around. You're not leaving till the last person is gone. Oh my God. And I so I often stayed there till like eight o'clock and they're like, you can leave. And I said, no, it's okay. And because my dad said, you're going to be the last one. So I remember there was a guy who worked there, Steve. And I said, hi, we haven't met. I'm Katie's intern. She had left for the day. And I said, can I help you with anything? Can I rearrange your Rolodex? That was the thing we did in the olden days. And he was like, actually, that would be great. So I did his Rolodex. 
And then I said, can I organize your files? So I took it upon myself to even clean up people's desks and straighten up their desks. And I started doing it. And then other people would say, hey, did you do Steve's desk? Will you do mine? I was like, sure. So I kind of made myself indispensable because, I mean, they dispensed with me. I went back to school. But like, they liked me. And they said, if you want to come back, please come back. Because my dad scared the shit out of me because I didn't network my way there. He networked my way there. So I literally was there from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m., even if like two people were left and there were crickets in the office. But that's so amazing that he said that because, I mean, especially now, you know, snowplow parenting where they just take away every obstacle and they'll make that We're snowblower parenting. Snowblower parenting. We like fucking up their path, (laughs) make it more challenging. (laughs) We used to call it curling parenting. Like, you know, the curling in the Olympics where they're like basically janitors on the ice and it has a smooth cruise. I don't think you're doing your kid any favors with that shit. So you did not make phone calls for your daughter's internship? Oh, no, no, I did. But I said the same thing to her. You did? Yes. She knows. Like, I said, you're going to eat shit. And my friend, Richard, who she's working for, was like, it's going to be so much fun. I'm going to take her to lunch. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not doing that. You are not doing that. No special treatment. Absolutely not. I want her to eat shit so that she knows how good she has it in school and works her ass off. Did you tell her she has to be the first one in and the last one to leave? You know, that was a little extreme. Um, (laughs) I thought that was a little extreme because I did have like hours on my butt. And he's like, you're not coming home. Like, because I was living with my parents. So I'm not getting that extreme. One of the things I hated when I had interns is like, what can I do now? What What do you want now? What do I want? And I was like, they're so annoying. Like you have to also know when to be scarce and go away from that person and go seek somebody else to tell you what to do. Cause otherwise you're going to be wasting a lot of time. So I just said, you know, go around to the other people and ask them to clean their desks and do all that. Alphabetize, help with other things. But oh my God, amazing! I don't want her like having too much fun. I think part of it is doing tasks that are not challenging and boring. I mean, that's like part of it. Right. And then you learn how to get good at them and you become resourceful and you, just widen your web there with everybody by but so working many, for everyone. So many internship supervisors, if you will, are such poor delegators. That's that right. The interns just sit around. Yeah. And if you're not proactive with them, right. I mean, I think it's great that she knows to ask for other people without yeah. being annoying. Right. And to go to other people, not just her boss. Absolutely. So going back to your whole process. How do you get creative? Where do you go to recharge your brain? I mean, to have done 11 books, to be on a show, to write a show, I literally could not write another book right now if you paid me, which you're not Well, your book's like research intensive. Mine just are coming out of my head. It's totally different. But that's hard. It's not hard for me. I just really – it's like breathing for me. Like I literally shit this stuff out. It's not – I'm not writing about like – a decapitated queen in the 1500s that I have to research the time and the brocade and the traditions. Like it's just coming from the, I don't know. I'm like a lazy writer. It's just coming from now. I think if you're writing something that's really, you have to roll up your sleeves and research, then those are the authors who are writing a classic that is 10 years in the making. That's not really what I do. Also, I'm done with novels. Like I just enjoy writing nonfiction now and my essays. And I do think it goes better with my potential ADD that I think I have. So I I enjoy doing smaller things. When I had little kids, I felt, I don't know if you had this, but I felt like I was never alone. 
Yes. And they were all <laughs> clawing all over you and you're so busy. And so writing books was a huge luxury for me because I felt like it was my only time alone. Where would you go to write? I didn't live here. We were in a small apartment. We had like a little maid's room that became Fletch's room. And then I just had a fold out CB2 TV table because I couldn't even get a proper desk. I had a TV table that I put a laptop on in my bedroom. That's how I wrote those 11 books. Wow. Actually, and no one, no one knocked on the door to bother you. You just locked it and that was it. I locked it, but I had to do it at certain times. Like sometimes I wrote at night, which I never could do now because I'm too tired. But sometimes I wrote at night. I just needed to get that time alone. Um, my first two books I just wrote when Sadie was napping. I didn't have a nanny till my third kid. And then I had a nanny and a housekeeper all of a sudden <laughs> and had more time by myself. But now that I'm older and they're all in school, I actually like people now. Whereas at the time I just wanted to be alone and I thought that was luxury. Once I started writing Odd Mom Out, I mean, I had written the pilot and then Bravo bought it. We developed it. We staffed a writer's room. Suddenly I'm with these funny people laughing around a table all day. And I realized that is better for this phase of life. And I love a writer's room. Like we had so many times, especially in season three with my showrunner, Lara Spots, where we were just howling, doubled over, laughing, being like, guys, can we just stop and appreciate that this is our job? Like, We're getting paid to just sit here and laugh our asses off. It was so weird. Like, It just felt like we were gaming the system or something. Where do you get your sense of humor from? I would say my parents. My dad was a stand-up comedian. He was? Yeah. He like paid his way through Columbia Business School doing stand-up. Wow. He's hilarious. I think it really helped him in his business career. His parents would not have let him really pursue that, but I think it still helped him in business because he always – I still meet all these people who are like, your dad made me laugh so hard with these jokes and dirty jokes. Um, And my mom can do really any accent. She's a genius mimic. Wow. So she did translation for the UN and was on the Today Show translating for all the French chefs and all this stuff. So she speaks four languages and – her ear is just unparalleled. So I feel like it's really from both of them. But also just growing up in New York, I feel like I've, I'm an observer. Yeah. I've just lived here for 44 years. So there's just a lot of funny stuff. If you live here, it's just by osmosis, I feel like. <laughs> Not for everyone. But I do think, I mean, they say to be a good public speaker, you should take stand-up classes because you learn how to read the audience. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I was always acting in college. And even now when I did UCB, I did a UCB show for a month last year and it was so much fun. That was also to me more about the performers, the sketch. It's like a little mini SNL Mm -hmm. and we had so much fun, but the audience, I was more just like reading off the other performers. I don't know. I loved it so much. These kids are, I mean, I, I could be their mother. Like it is crazy how talented they are and their kids. I mean, they're like 23 years old. So your first acting job was Odd Mom Out. Yes. For like on air. Being paid, yeah. Like being well, paid. Yes, yes. That is an incredible thing. How did you even prepare? Like were you like freaked out or were no. you just like super, I've got this? I've got this because it's like not a stretch. It's me. It's a version of me. So I mean, Bravo was billing it very early as like Larry David on the Upper East Side. And it's a version of me. <laughs> so it's not like a stretch when Larry David did Curb, right? Like I'm not comparing myself to him, but it's the same idea of playing a version of yourself. So it's not like a huge jump and a huge challenge. But scripted. Scripted. So like, you had to yeah, memorize like all of that. 
I've always been a very good study, like quick, quick study. I think I have a photographic memory. So that was not my problem. My problem was more like the stupid shit, like standing in stilettos for 14 hours. I mean, I would change into Ugg boots when we had a lighting change, but it was the dumb stuff like that that was way more challenging. How did you deal with the sort of public reaction? I mean, I can't imagine on social media, like, what I don't was it care. like? I, because I'm old. So like my life is the same. Like I have such a thick skin. I think if you're a 22 year old girl and you're coming of age kind of on TV or, you know, dealing with social media, like you would care. Whereas I have total armor. I have my friends. I'm married. I have my kids. Like, I don't give a shit if someone says I look like Marilyn Manson or I'm a Jew cunt. I don't care. Oh, I do not harsh. care. Honestly, I didn't even think it was harsh because they're profile pictures and egg and they have seven <laughs> followers. Like, I don't, I do not care. Do you know what I mean? I do not care. I would have cared probably at 20, you know, if I felt like, oh, I'm single and I'm trying to, not that you need a man to be your armor, but I became my own armor because of, you know, these relationships, mm-hmm. my children, my friends, but you know, you just, you have your posse. So it's just that whole thing of you can break a twig, but you can't break a bundle of twigs. Like by 44, you have your bundle of twigs. And I guess in a way, that's just your persona. You are a strong person. How do you sort of relay that to your kids? Like how do you make sure like social media now, I mean, my daughter's 11 and I'm already having a breakdown over just like in general, just how she reacts to things and fear of missing out and just I'm really into JOMO, joy of missing out. You know, when when they first got their phones and they would see a party, I was like, listen, you don't want to be anywhere that you weren't invited. And furthermore, like if they're stopping to film it, how great can it be? You know, secondly, in terms of like the bullying stuff or nasty people, if you don't respect someone's opinion, right? Like often the people who bash me are Trump supporters or people that saw something I wrote, you know, that's pro-choice or whatever it is. And then they'll message me and say I'm some like flaming cunt. If I don't respect their opinion, then why would I give a shit about their insults? It's true. It's very true. I just don't care. Going back to just the load and sort of the work-life balance, I imagine your days when you were shooting were crazy long. They were. I mean, it was hard. I had a moment because I'm not like a guilty mom who feels mother guilt or whatever. And when I had my third people said like, motherhood is just guilt management. I'm not that person. I'm really not. The first time I ever felt sort of guilty was shooting on mom out because the writer's room was just a regular nine to five job. Mm -hmm. So that's when I felt like I'm a better mom because I work and I'm actually like so much more present now that I'm just home with them for those three hours. Because when I was with them all day, I was so exhausted. It was, by the way, to all the stay-at-home moms, I got to say, I was a stay-at-home mom for 11 years. It was much harder than shooting for 14 hours in stilettos, much harder. It was so much more draining. I was exhausted. And for me personally, I don't think that I was like as energized just because they sapped the life out of me. So when I was working and I came home, I felt way more like in touch with them in a weird way. But I became totally absentee mom for 10 weeks when we filmed. And I had a system where Each day, one of the three kids would come to set and have dinner with me alone, one-on-one. So I had that, but really I was just with them on the weekends. For 10 weeks? For 10 weeks. And how old were they at the time? They were 11, 9, and 7. 
So it was really like a tough period for them because I was kind of MIA. My husband stepped up, so I was really lucky. Harry works for himself and he has a big company, but he could cut corners to deal with stuff. And my mom, I couldn't have done it without my mom. My mom like took them to school, picked them up, ran them to their after school shit. Like I could not have done it without my mom. However, at one point I said, God, I'm like totally these kids, like I'm going to go back and be super mom after this because I was just blowing them off. And in post-production, it's back to nine to five. So, and I actually didn't even do that. I would like swoop in for five hours and Lara really took over. But someone said to me, didn't your dad travel all the time when you were a kid? I was like, yeah, he spent a week a month in Paris. And they were like, okay. And didn't he work all the time and travel to all these boutiques and go travel all over the country? Yeah, he did. So he was probably gone two weeks a month even. And they said, aren't you just as close to your dad as your mom? And I was like, yes, I am. So it made me feel totally okay. I just was like, oh, I'm, I'm the dad right now. And it made me feel okay. And it's temporary. Yes. So- And it was worth it because it was brilliant. But I love, I I read somewhere that you have a rule that you do five nights at home and two nights out. Do you still do that? Yeah, we still do it. Yeah. What made you come up with that? Is that how you grew up as well? No, my parents went out like three or four nights because they had so many work obligations, so many industry dinners, so many things that you have to show up for. I don't have that and Harry doesn't have it. So I mean, honestly, like we don't really like benefits anymore. I know that they're important, but I'd rather write a check or something than go to a benefit and stay home. I just feel like right now my kids, when they were babies, I needed that time out of the house because I was like housebound. So I liked going out to dinner with Harry, but now they really need us and they want us around. And by the way, they're fun. So I like hanging out with them. When you have little kids, you just need something for yourself. And culturally, I needed to go to the ballet or go to the opera or go to a movie or something to just feel tapped in. Because I remember one year, I was watching the Emmys. I was like, I don't know who the fuck these people are. Like, I didn't know anyone was. You go into like a mom pop cultural vortex and I needed to claw my way out. I think it's an amazing rule. I really do because I think they do need you. I think all kids need their parents. And it's sad when you sort of see the ones who are acting out in school or the ones who are getting in trouble. And my nephew goes to a school where, you know, one kid just got suspended for what he posted on social media. And it happens to be that this kid's mom is just she works and she's constantly traveling. And I think that it's a hard situation. So I, I commend you for that. How do you handle pressure? Do you feel pressure or is it just because everything flows so naturally you don't? I feel pressure in like fits and starts. I mean, the weird thing is see, like the woman you just described, if she has a big career and a company, that's a marathon when I am as a sprinter. So I lay fallow last year. I was working. I mean, I had my Sirius XM show, but that was two days a week. And then I was writing a bunch of essays and articles and things like that. But for me, it was a fallow, like 2018. But I knew that I had things percolating so Mm -hmm. that when they go, then you're like off to the races and you have to jam. So the pressure is always fleeting. I mean, it might be a few months at a time with deadlines. But even then, you know, I was on deadline for something and I handed it in and then you breathe easy. Then you have three days of not worrying. Whereas there are people who just constantly wake up with a pit of anxiety. And I just, I don't have that. It's a real luxury. I'd rather jam and be kind of glued to my computer and feeling stressed for a period and then relax. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like essentially you have the ability to 
take on more because you know that it'll just be really, really intense for a while. And then you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. So like that 10 weeks of odd mom out, you were like, it's going to be super intense, but it'll be over. Yeah. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. And now it's even easier because my kids are older. So they're 16, 13 and 11. So now I feel like when I do go back, I'm working on another TV show they're fine. Like they're on their tracks. They all have cell phones now, whereas none of them did in the first time. So now it's like, okay, in the two years since then, I've been very hands-on. I'm at pickup every day. I'm I'm very, very connected with them. So when when I do go back to set, I feel like it's in a totally different place. So much easier. They're so independent now. It's so much easier. My kids are 14 and 11 and I, I cannot imagine going back to like the baby stage of anything. Yeah. But of course I got a puppy so that <sighs> that's worse. It kind of is. So if you had gotten down a sort of quote unquote traditional path, if you were a boss and you had a company, mm-hmm. what kind of boss would you be? Oh, I think I'd be the best boss. Like all my little, my younger interns and all those people were into me because I think I had had such a negative experience that I always led with positive reinforcement and always said like, you rock and thank you so much. This is awesome. And if there was something done wrong, I would couch it with like love and appreciation and then just say like, what I would do next time is do this. I just was so conscious of not wanting to be a cunt like those people, you know? I love that. I think you'd be a great boss. I would totally work for you. Oh, thanks. (laughs) I think on set, I mean, it wasn't a traditional company, but we had 125 people on my set. And because I didn't come up in the industry, I did things my way because I didn't have some kind of rule book. And everybody said, wow, this is like very unusual because our set was such a family. And if you ask anyone in our crew, they're like constantly saying how much they miss it. I got there and I I said to somebody, what's that guy's name in the camera department again? They're like, I don't know. And I said, doesn't everyone know each other? I thought you guys all worked on Broad City together. And they're like, yeah, I just can't remember. I don't remember that guy or whatever. So I said, hey, can we get a Facebook made, please? And they said, we don't really – that's not like a thing. And I said, well, it is now. So we got an intern to make a – I said, you're going to go to every single department, take a picture, have them text a selfie, and we're going to do like a printed Facebook and every single person on this set is going to have it. So we all know each other's names. And by that time, we had our rap party like singing karaoke drunk. Everyone was like so bonded. And it starts with making that decision that you're going to have that connected – environment, then it's just like crackling and it's friendship and it just has that, you know, unity to it. That was so PR of you. That's what we do for the shows. The oh, really? The first two rows of the shows. Yeah. We would just to make sure everyone was seated in the right seat. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Hmm. I've had so much. I would say better sorry than safe. I feel like people don't take risks. Everyone's such scaredy cats. It's so important to take risks. I just think like, it's that whole no guts, no glory thing. And you, everyone is always told better safe than sorry their whole lives. I think you have to kind of flip it. I think that is such good advice. So would you say now you enjoy acting more than writing or both? Both. Here's the thing. Like uh, some things came down the transom for me, acting things that were outside of things I wrote and I read them <laughs> and I was like, I don't need to be an actress that badly that I'm going to do like some bitchy mom in yoga pants in a movie. Like I've done a couple things that I've enjoyed, but they're all things where I felt like it was a, a something interesting to me, but I don't need it that badly. Right. Right now I'm just interested in performing what I'm writing. It's great. How will you leave your mark, do you think? Um, my kids. 
I feel like I'm raising good humans. Like they're not little shits. One of them might be. No, I'm kidding. Um, No, I think my kids are – I'm really super proud of them. I think I'm teaching them to use their voice so that when I'm gone, there'll be like three, you know, vociferous protesters to any social injustice or anything they see around them, they're going to speak up. They're not going to be scaredy cats. I'm sure that they're great because you put in the time, which is what it takes to make great kids. What will be written on your tombstone? That's a good one. I guess like no matter what you do, it's always mother and wife, right? Like, I know that sounds strange. You gotta have something funny on your tombstone. Yeah, I gotta crack that nut. I'll figure it out. Sprinkle <laughs> glitter on my grave. That was a good one. That's yes. a good one. That's sort of in my will now from my book title. I think that's brilliant. I think flowers are dumb. My middle child said, flowers just die and they get brown and that's so depressing. I'm gonna sprinkle glitter on your grave because it's very hard to clean up. So true. It's so true. So true. So you have another show that's next for you. I cannot wait till we learn about it. I'm very excited. So I'm sorry excited. there's duct tape over my cock washer, but it's okay. That's okay. Jill, thank you so my pleasure. much. I always love seeing you. I love seeing you. I've been such a fan for I'm, so long and you're the nicest person. And I love when success happens to kind, good people. So thank you. And I feel the same way about you. Where can everyone follow you? Oh, my social media is all just my name. I'm very boring. Just You're not Jill boring. Kargman. Jill Kargman. At the little at Jill Kargman. Well, follow Jill. She's Instagram, hysterical. Twitter, Facebook. I'm a whore. I adore you. Likewise. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark the Podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on elisalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at elisalickxo or reach out on Twitter at elisalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.